You're listening to a sermon from New City Fellowship in Manassas, Virginia. New City Fellowship is a diverse community that proclaims the gospel and makes disciples for the glory of God and the renewal of our city. For more information, visit newcityfellowship.net. The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the, from the peoples of the lands to the law of God. Join their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding. Join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses to servant, the servant of God and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, and his rules and his statutes. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. We also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God, for the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and for all the work of the house of our God. We, the priests, the Levites, and the people have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it into the house of our God, according to our father's houses at appointed times, at times appointed, year by year, to burn on the altar of the Lord our God, as it is written in the law. We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all fruit of every tree, year by year, to the house of the Lord. Also, to bring to the house of our God, to the priests who minister, uh, who minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, as it is written in the law, and the firstborn of our herds and of our flocks, and to bring the first of our dough and, com- and the contributions, the, fir- the fruit of every tree, the wine and the oil to the priests, to the chambers of the house of, the, of our God, and to bring the Levites to the tithes from our ground. For it is written, Levites who collect the tithes in all our towns, where we labor. And the priests, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the, the tithes. And the Levites shall bring up the tithe of the tithes to the house of our God, to the chambers of the storehouse. For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are as well as the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers, we will not neglect the house of our God. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everyone. It's uh, great to be with you. If you're just joining us this morning as a guest, I just wanna add my welcome to you. We're really glad that you're here. And um, my name is Will, if we've never met before, Maya, where we find ourselves this morning. And so we consider his, uh, all of us now, just take a minute to slow down and pray and invite God to speak to us as we consider his word together. Let's pray. Lord, I'm captivated by the commitment the people make at the end of this chapter 
They go through all these different offerings and all these different ways that in the old covenant they would worship you. But um, we collectively as a people just want to echo thousands of years later what they say right here at the end. We say as your people this morning, we will not neglect the house of our God. That's why we're here, Lord. We just acknowledge that before you. There's a lot of things we could be doing on a Sunday morning. But here we are saying, Lord, we want to be in your house as your people, uh, your temple in this room to meet with you. And so now, now that we're here, now that we have attended to gathering, uh, we ask that, that you would, would follow through, that you would show to be true the words in James that says, when we draw near to you, you draw near to us. Would you, as we've gathered in your house, as your people draw near to us now, and would you help us to evaluate our lives this morning? Would you help us to consider what it is that we prize or treasure or value above all else? Uh, would, you, would you convict of the places where whatever that might be is something besides you? And would you set us after you as a people of worship, we pray? God, expose our idols this morning and let us find the God of the universe, the true and living God, to be our deepest and most prized treasure. So I can just acknowledge, especially if you're new to the faith, you may find the Bible to be about a big and complicated book. And one of the ways that we can kind of get a sense of what the Bible is about amidst all of its different things and uh, you know, complexity is by observing patterns. So uh, uh, things that come up over and over again in the Bible. And as we arrive at Nehemiah 10, what we see happening sort of with the way this, this chapter is structured with chapter nine is a pattern that we see happening over and over again all throughout the Bible. Let me just give you what that pattern is as a simple equation, and then we're gonna see it kind of unfold in the passage uh, this morning. So what, what is this pattern that we see all over on the pages of the Bible? Here it is. What we see happening when people encounter God, it's this. You see people who are in desperation plus a God of redemption resulting in lives of devotion. Can I say that for you one more time? This pattern all over the pages of scripture. People in desperation plus a God of redemption resulting in lives of devotion or worship. I'm going to just give you a few examples of this. Rattle them off and then we'll look at it here in this passage. So think about way back in the book of Genesis, Abraham, he's living in a cursed and fallen world and God just sovereignly invites him to leave all of that behind and to become a chosen people. And so he redeems Abraham out of that and we see when you read Abraham's story over and over again, the result of this redemption that Abraham has experienced him building altars, him giving offerings, him worshiping God devoting his life to God in light of the redemption he experienced. How about the people of Israel a few hundred years later? They find themselves, they experience a God of redemption, a God who brings them into freedom. But remember when God says that he's gonna bring them into freedom, the end goal is not just freedom. What does Moses say to Pharaoh when the people are enslaved? Not just let my people go, let my people go that they might worshipful devotion. In the Psalms, all over the place, let me read to you, this to you from Psalm 116, verses one and two. 
I love the Lord, the psalmist says. Why does the psalmist love the Lord? Because he heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. Only desperate people need mercy. So he says, I was in a desperate situation, helpless, and this God heard my pleas for mercy and he delivered me. So, so he goes on to say uh, that therefore, uh, because he has inclined his ear to, ear to me, therefore I will call on him as long as I live. I was desperate. God showed me mercy and he redeemed me. So for the rest of my life, I'm gonna devote myself to him. Let's go to the New Testament, okay? I'll give you more examples. Think of the scores of people, demon-possessed, uh, some significant physical ailment, uh, some enormous issue that crippled their lives. They meet Jesus. They're desperate and they meet Jesus. They're redeemed and set free by him. And what do they do? Shake his hand, Jesus, thank you very much. I'll now go about my life. I appreciate you setting me free. No, they experience his redemption, his salvation, and now all over the, the, the gospel accounts, we see people wanting to devote their lives to following Jesus. Do we need one more? I'll give you one more and we can look at Nehemiah. How about the whole book of Romans, okay? The whole book of Romans is structured this way if you've ever read it before. Verses, or sorry, chapters one through three describe humanity's desperate situation. Uh, chapters four through 11 described what God has done in Christ to relieve us of our desperate situation. And then when it talks about how we now live in light of it, chapter 12 in Romans, therefore, in view of God's mercy, offer yourselves as a living sacrifice. This is your spiritual act of worship. Desperate people, a God of redemption, lives of devotion. That's exactly what is happening here in chapter nine of Nehemiah. If you remember last week, or sorry, here in chapter 10, if you remember last week in chapter nine, there was this just pattern happening over and over again. The people would turn away from God to worship idols. They would end up in a desperate situation uh, because of it. They would call out to God, and, and we heard Nehemiah describe over and over again, God, because of your great mercy, your great mercy, your steadfast love, you delivered us. So they look back at God about the whole chapter. I, I realize as Robbie read, there were some obscure offerings and sort of Levitical practices of the Old, Old Testament that may sound obscure to us, but the whole chapter is about worship. It's about people who uh, were in a desperate situation that experienced God's deliverance of them, bringing them back from exile to Jerusalem, and now them committing over and over again we will now live lives of worship. And uh, I, I, before we jump in and, and look at this passage, passage specifically, I, I want us to understand how important it is that we understand this pattern. Can I tell you, brothers and sisters, what happens to our lives when we don't get this pattern right? When we don't worship God truly as he's called us to, uh, what we end up doing is going right back to the beginning to a place of desperation. What I want you to understand this morning is that the main problem that you face in your life is probably not circumstantial. Uh, it's probably not relational with the people in your life. It's not that you need a higher salary or you need less debt or whatever. The core problem facing everyone in this room this morning is this. Who or what do you worship? Because if we do not worship as God has designed us to worship, we end up in places of despair, 
places of pain, places of our lives unraveling, if we do not worship as God has designed us to, we end up in a place of desperation. And so this is the question this morning. How do we worship rightly? How do we live the lives of worship that God has called us to? That's what we're gonna consider this morning and we're gonna consider three areas together. Number one, I wanna consider with you our worship design. I wanna talk about how we have been hardwired, designed to worship. Number two, I want us to to consider our, our worship disorder. There is something deeply wrong uh, within us that, that has a disorder in the, in the our worship redeemed. So number one, our, our, our worship design. Number two, our worship disorder. And then finally, our worship redemption. Let's just consider our design to worship right out of the gate this morning. And this is the point that I wanna make as I've already mentioned. There's something deep within us as human beings that causes us to engage in worship. It's as though we have been hardwired at our very core to worship. And we see that all over this passage. I wanna look at it a little bit more closely. So uh, what's happening in this passage? It's all about worship. In verses 29 through 30, uh, what we see happening are the people committing themselves uh, to live lives of worship by obeying the law that had been laid out by Moses. Uh, Verses 31 are about observance of a religious or liturgical calendar. Things like the Sabbath, uh, the sabbatical year. Really, any any religion around the world will have uh, a calendar to it, and so they're saying that they're going to practice that. Verses 32 through 38 is all about sacrifices, offerings made in worship, and then the the devotion that the people were to offer God really is summarized at the final verse in this chapter. Let me read it one more time. Uh, We will not neglect the house of our God. So it's pretty obvious this chapter is about worship. Israel recognized they had a a unique call on their lives to worship Yahweh. But what I want us to do is just zoom out from Israel and recognize that this is actually not just present with Israel. Our worship design isn't just for people who kind of find themselves, you know, uh, living in, uh, you know, the uh, modern day Israel or or, uh, Israel in the time of Moses. What, isn't it interesting that doesn't it say something about us and our design that virtually every nation, every tribe, every people group across this globe have some expression of worship? You can have tribes on the furthest corners of this world, tribes that have never interacted with one another, know nothing about each other, and yet when anthropologists, uh, certain prayers or ceremonies that they would go through uh, across this globe, what we see happening are human beings, regardless of where they find themselves, engaging in acts of worship. We are designed to worship. Now, I recognize that we, we could sort of give maybe a modern objection to this idea that we are designed to worship because certainly in modern times, uh, you know, as we've grown more with our education, uh, with technology, certainly we've set a lot of that, that, you know, primitive worship behind as modern people. But what I would have us consider, even if you're here this morning, you're an atheist, you reject God and entirely. Uh, The one who uh, uh, I want to point out this morning, David Foster Wallace, at a graduation speech in the uh, early 2000s, said this. For people who are thinking about their lives, getting ready to go into the world, and David Foster Wallace is by no means a worshiping Christian, but he says the following at this graduation ceremony. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. 
There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. Why is this non-Christian saying that everyone worships? Because he recognizes that the core of what worship is all about is not just visiting temples, singing songs, or praying prayers. Worship is about devoting your life to something. And everyone does this. We all devote our lives to something that we think will give us lasting happiness, lasting meaning, and significance. Something that will make our lives count for something. So whether you do that in a, a temple in Thailand or a church that meets in a school or that we think will give us lasting value, last, we against lasting satisfaction. Whether you're a religious person or not, we all are chasing down something of value, something that will give us ultimate happiness. So whoever you are in this room this morning, it doesn't matter if you would describe yourself as a religious person or not, all of us seek to worship something. That's in our design. We were hardwired to do it. So let's talk now secondly then, not, not just about our design to worship, let's focus in real intently on our worship disorder. We were designed to worship, but something has gone terribly wrong with the way that we carry out our worship. And the Apostle Paul puts it like this. If you still have your Bibles open, I want you to read this with me. Romans chapter one, verse 25. Let me give you just a second to turn there. Romans 1, 25. What Paul is doing is describing the main problem in the world, the, the, the heart of the problem he's, he's getting after here in Romans 1, 25, and he says the following about all of us. Concerning humanity, he says, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worship and served creation rather than creator. Do you hear the core problem that Paul is describing with humanity? Uh, it's the same problem that the people in Nehemiah faced. It's the same problem that you and I face thousands of years later. Humanity's core problem at the heart is not that we haven't implemented the right political system. Humanity's core problem is not that there are unequal power structures in society. Humanity's core problem is not a lack of education. Uh, 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 the, uh, our core problem is not self-esteem or that society doesn't let us live out our true selves. The core problem with humanity is that we would prefer to worship some created thing instead of our creator. All of us naturally prefer creation to creator. So Paul says that we worship and serve creation rather than creator. Let's look at those two verbs. We worship and serve. So what does it mean to worship? To worship something is to ascribe worth, value. So what we do is we look at some aspect of creation and say, that thing right there, that is of highest thing, is worth more to me than anything else. So that's what we start with doing. That's kind of internally, but it says we worship and then we serve that thing. What does that mean? Once we've ascribed value to some aspect of creation, we begin building our lives around it. We begin living in such a way uh, that we're saying, I must have that thing. And so, you know, not just mentally or internally am I describe, ascribing value uh, towards it. I am building my life on that thing. This is our core problem. This is our disorder. 
Not that we just uh, do bad things, but we take good things that God has given to us as gifts and make them ultimate things, things that our lives will not make sense without, things that become our deepest treasure. We would rather have some aspect of creation rather than creator. And the Bible has a word for it. The word that the Bible gives to us for this worship disorder is simply called idolatry. Idolatry. To some of us, that sounds like an ancient term, like idolatry is what you do when you like light a candle to a God in a temple or something like that. But I want you to listen to how Tim Keller describes idolatry in his great book called Counterfeit Gods. He says the following, an idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and your imagination more than God. Anything that you seek to give you what only God can give you. Anything you seek to give you. It's anything so central to your life that should you lose it, this is so key, should you lose it, your life would hardly feel worth living. That's, that's what an idol is. And what this passage actually does is move us from a general description of idolatry, you know, we like created things rather than creator, and it actually hits on some of the specific ones, some of the big ones that many of us in this room are chasing down right now. So here, here's how this passage does it. It doesn't so much name the to make sure we don't do that anymore. In other words, what we see happening in this passage are lists of basically the antidote uh, to our idolatry, to some specific ones. So, so let's, let's look at them together. So uh, one of the main ones that we as human beings chase down uh, as an aspect of creation that will satisfy us is in this category of sex or romance. Uh, you know, romantic relationship, human sexuality, where do I see that happening in this passage? Well, here in verse 30, they're making this commitment before the Lord in this covenant, we will not give our daughters to the people of the land, nor take their daughters for our sons. So a, a little bit of a cultural jump here. What would happen in those days is marriages between tribes or people groups might have some like financial benefit or might you know, create some sort of alliance, which I recognize that we're not doing today. But, but here's what they were, were, were doing. God had told them, you are only to marry within the covenant of Israel. You're not to marry with foreigners. But they thought to themselves, but for me to truly experience happiness, I need to step outside the bounds of what God has said pertaining to my relationships or sexuality. And so they would compromise that. They would think life simply won't make sense. It won't be livable if we, if we can't engage in these marriages. And so they would compromise it. Now, I've never pastorally uh, I've done a bunch of weddings, have not done an arranged one yet, okay? Uh, I've never had someone in modern times say like, oh, we're gonna enter into this marriage because it'll have this like financial benefit for us. But man, how many people in this room right now are thinking to themselves, hey, in order for me to be happy, what God says about sexuality just isn't gonna cut it. In order for me to live a fulfilled life, what God says about my relationships, whether it's my dating relationships or how I carry out my sexuality, I have got to step outside the bounds of what God has described. It's not just breaking a rule. It's idolatry. Big one. How about another one? Success or career goods or instrument. That's going to be in verse 31. Listen to what it says. And if the people of the lands bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day, and we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every 
debt. So uh, in order, because we are like high achieving people, in order for us to not make a God out of our career or out of success or out of advancement, God set up the, the, the calendar of the Sabbath. Hey, people of Israel, work really hard for six days, but on the seventh day, shut it all down. Even if foreign nations wanna do business with you, shut it down. Focus on what you already have. Focus on family. Focus on thankfulness. Focus on worship. Focus on being rather than doing. But as time would go on, the people would recognize, listen, for us to really be happy, for us to really uh, uh, live fulfilled lives, we need to push the envelope just a little bit, work a little bit harder, push that clock a little bit harder. Another way they would do it, on the seventh year of farming, they were supposed to leave the fields alone. Uh, they need time to regain nutrients and so forth. So there is this pattern of, of shutting down some of their agricultural activity on the seventh year, but the people weren't engaging in that because they worshiped and served at the altar of success, career, advancement. How about one more? This might be the biggest one for us, money. All over, especially the New Testament, the deceptiveness of money as an idol that if I could just hit this benchmark in my salary or this place in my career or this size house or whatever, this idol of money, so deceptive, it's addressed in this passage. How is it addressed in this passage? Well, uh, first of all, there, there's this mention of giving all throughout it. The people are recognizing, hey, for us to not turn money and possessions into a God, we're going to engage in this act of offering, of giving, of using our resources uh, as, as a means of worship to God so that we don't treasure it. Now, I know none of us participate in the, the various offerings of bread and grain and different things happening in this passage, but man, how many people in this room think to themselves, once again, if I just had this salary mark, this amount for retirement, this size house, you'd truly be satisfied. These are idols. These are things that are good that we turn into ultimate things. Notice we're not talking about a category of sin here. We're talking about a category of something that's good that God has given us. Prioritize these things over the God of the universe, the one of infinite worth, infinite value, the one who offers to us infinite satisfaction. We look at him and say, no thank you, I'd rather have this relationship. I'd rather have this place in my career. I'd rather have money than you. And before we move on to talk about how God redeems this area of our life, I need us to feel for just a second the weight, the significance of the idols of our life because it can come, kind of come across as, okay, we get it. Don't prioritize those things, prioritize God. What I need you to hear this morning is how devastating how destructive it will be to your life if you worship and serve some aspect of creation over the creator. Let me start by just giving you a few different verses that describe idolatry, okay? So, so first of all, 1 Corinthians 10, 14, Paul says the following, therefore my beloved, he's speaking to people he loves, I love you, therefore my beloved flee idolatry. That, that word flee would be like what you would do from a burning house. Flee idolatry. The closing verse in 1 John, as John is writing to a church he loves and his just last thought as he leaves them is this. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Keep yourselves from them. They are destructive. They are deadly. Keep yourselves from them. Psalm 16, 4. Many of us have experienced this verse practically. It says, uh, the, the, the sorrows of those who run after another God will multiply. 
the sorrows of those who make something their God besides the God of the universe will multiply over and over again. Some of us have experienced the multiplying sorrows of making something a God besides the God who made us. And if you keep chasing idols, the point is your sorrows will only increase. And I got just a couple examples of these sorrows increasing. One of them has to do with sort of a church setting and an idol, the other is outside of a church setting. So I can remember years ago watching this take place and just being per- just personally devastated over it. So I remember young, one young woman, she was in her 20s, who no church background whatsoever, never really been involved, even like Easter Sunday stuff. She never even did that. Uh, Came in, was amazed by the sense of community that was in our church and just kind of how she was welcomed in and given a a sense of belonging. Uh, She had a very traumatic experience in her life where the church came around her in a way that really shocked her. Uh, and, And it wasn't just the community. I can remember standing at our old building preaching about Jesus and watching this young woman who'd never been in church hear about Jesus. Tears are just streaming down her face as she hears about the good news of what Jesus had done to love and give himself for someone like her. So we had various conversations. We were sitting down at a coffee shop here locally and beginning to talk about baptism and all the things that it would mean as she was ready to begin this this life journey with Jesus. Man, baptism means that all of your sins are forgiven. Baptism, it doesn't cause these things, but it symbolizes all of your sins are forgiven. Baptism means that uh, you uh, are are given a brand new identity, a, a brand new clean slate. Ultimately, baptism means that you get everlasting life. Like Jesus promises for those who put their faith in him, beyond the grave, they will live forever. How incredible is all of that? And she's ready to go. She's excited. And then we began talking about her life a little bit and how she, uh, you know, is excited to walk with Jesus, but she had just entered into a relationship with someone who wasn't, wasn't walking with him. Uh, a dating relationship. They had been on a few dates. Uh, and, and I began to communicate, hey, part of turning towards Jesus is turning away from the things he doesn't want in our life. And if this person isn't walking with him and you're going to, then that's something that you just need to trust him with. You need to turn away from and trust him with. We ended that conversation She never stepped foot in our church again. It reminded me of the rich young ruler who is eager, excited, ready to walk with Jesus, and he he points to the idol in the rich young ruler's life. You can follow me, but let's talk about this idol of wealth and possession. Sell all of it and give to the poor. He turned his back on Jesus and forfeited everlasting life for this cheap little idol. That's how deceptive, that's how counterfeit gods. And this one is a little bit graphic, but I do just want us to hear this, the devastation of building our life on anything besides God, what it can ultimately bring to us. So listen to what he says about uh, the global economic meltdown in the early 2000s. After the global economic uh, crisis beginning in mid-2008, there followed a tragic string of suicides of formerly wealthy and well-connected individuals. The acting chief financial officer of Freddie Mac, uh, the Federal Home Loan Mortgage Corporation, hanged himself in his basement. The chief executive of uh, Sheldon Good, a, a lending company, excuse me, a leading U.S. real estate auction firm, shot himself in his head while he was in his red Jaguar. A French money manager who had invested the wealth of many of Europe's royal and leading families who had lost $1.4 billion of his client's money in Bernard Madoff's Ponzi scheme slit his wrists and died in his, in his office. A Danish senior executive with HSBC Bank hanged himself in his wardrobe of his uh, extremely expensive suite in Knightsbridge, London. 
uh, I could go on with countless examples of recognize this. These are, these are people who even after the meltdown of the financial market would have more money than any of you and I will ever see or, or touch. And yet because they had built their lives on something so trivial, so uh, here today and gone tomorrow is wealth, when it was all gone, they came back to that question that we hit earlier, without this idol, what's the point of living at all? They were so devastated by it that when they were pressed with what's the point of living without this thing, they took their own lives. Brothers and sisters, this is not just a small priority. Idolatry is devastating to our lives. So let's, how is our, finally our worship redeemed? The good news is we don't have to run after idols. The people in this passage show us what it looks like to have the worship that we were originally designed to engage in redeemed. They show us how to engage in the type of worship that we were meant to pursue in the first place. How is our worship redeemed? Number one, we have to make some bold decisions this morning. Some bold decisions this morning to turn away from our idols. That's what they're doing here. That's what they're committing before the Lord as a people this morning. They had experienced the emptiness and the pain of devoting themselves to something besides their God. And so they're saying before him, we're done with our idols. So uh, where, where do we see that happening throughout this passage? Well, let's look at some of the examples once again. As it pertains to human sexuality, what they're saying here in this passage is, we will no longer reject God's word for how sex is supposed to work. God designed sex. He's got the best plan for it. So we're gonna submit our own ideas and opinions to it, uh, about it to him. We will no longer enter into marriages with those who don't know you or walk with you. We will stop looking to relationships or marriage or sex to fulfill us. Are there any in this room this morning that perhaps need to stop looking to uh, relationships, marriages, uh, some expression of sexuality, some sexual fantasy as a, as a means of fulfillment? What about work and success, career? What they're saying here is, God, we're gonna work really hard on six days. And then on the Sabbath, we're gonna shut it down. We don't care if the foreign nations wanna do business with us. We are turning from the idols of career and success as something that can fill us. We're gonna join, I never thought I'd quote him, but we're gonna join Kanye West uh, in his commitment to Sabbath uh, as he described in his famous song, Chick-fil-A. I honestly don't know where Kanye West is at with the Lord at the moment, but these are good words for us to heed. In this song, he says, uh, closed on Sunday, you my Chick-fil-A. <laughs> Hold the selfies, put the gram away, gonna stop climbing this ladder of success. We're shutting some technology down. We're shutting advancement down. We're shutting it all down. We're gonna get together as a family and we're gonna pray. And how many in this morning need to recognize whatever you think your career is gonna give you, it's not that good. And whatever compromise you need to make in order to get there, it's not worth it. Shut it down and focus on worship. What about money? The people here are saying in this passage, no matter how much money you make, money will not satisfy you. Money is a great tool, even a gift that God gives you, but it will not ultimately satisfy. And I love how they attack uh, the idol of money in this passage. Can I just leave you with this this morning? If money is something that can captivate you and uh, you, know, you think that it can ultimately fulfill you, the best way to not worship money is to worship with your money. Does that distinction make sense to you? The best way to not ascribe too high of worth to money 
is to take your money and to say, God, how can I worship you with what you've given me? That's what they're saying in this passage over and over again. We're gonna give this, we're going to offer that. Uh, They're saying, in order to make sure that we don't over-prioritize possessions or money, we're gonna use them for your glory. We're gonna be really generous. There's some of us this morning that need to contemplate generosity as a means uh, of fighting the idol of money. So here the people are, painfully aware of the cost of idolatry, and they are turning from their idols, forsaking them, knowing that they will only increase their sorrows should they keep pursuing them. But if that is where we stop, merely turning from our idols, we are hopeless. Let me read you one other example uh, in this book, Counterfeit Gods, of someone who recognized the idol of money in his life. His name was Andrew Carnegie. If you've studied business, you know he was one of the uh, founders of the company that ultimately led to American Steel. It's described business enterprise in the world. We've got a whole bunch of 30-year-olds in this church, right? I happen to be 33. And so uh, he, he, at age 33, had more money of us than any of us will ever see uh, more profitable than any business in the world. And so he, he was thoughtful. He, he was careful though because he knew that money can be a wicked taskmaster and it can ruin you. So he said the following in a, in a journal entry. Man must have an idol. The amassing of wealth is one of the worst species of idolatry. I love how he described that. The amassing of wealth is one of the worst species of idolatry. No idol more debasing than worshiping money. He said concerning his his business enterprises, to continue much longer overwhelmed by business cares and with most of my thoughts wholly upon the way to make more money in the shortest time possible, it will degrade me beyond hope of recovery. So he made this commitment. I will resign business at 35. I will resign business at 35. Most profitable company in the world. I am shutting it all down in two years. What do you all think he did? Do you think he shut it all down in two years? No, he didn't. He spent the rest of his life devoted to that steel company, which actually went on to to not only, as he described, debase him, many of the people who worked in those steel companies would have to nail uh, planks of wood to their shoes in order for them to be able to work. Uh, They they worked in uh, such miserable conditions that the average age of death for people who worked in his steel factories uh, was 40, was in their 40s because of the toll that it would take on their bodies. He said to himself, I see if I chase this down, if I treasure money, it will debase me and make me a miserable human being. But he kept chasing it. He kept pursuing it because it's not enough for us to just turn from idols. We cannot just turn from these worthless idols, but we must turn to the living God. It's not enough to just not worship idols. We will worship. The solution is devote your life to worshiping the only one that can satisfy you. Devote your life to worshiping the one you were made for. Devote your life to the only one who's worthy of it. Devote your life to serving and worshiping the true and living God. That is the solution to our idolatry. And a great discussion at discipleship group coming up would be, hey, how can we recognize some of our idols and what does it look like to devote ourselves to worship? But I just wanna close with this thought about how they fought idolatry. I think this is very significant. At the very end, in the midst of turning from their idols, they say, hey, we're gonna neglect all of these things, whether it's sex, romance, money, beauty, power, whatever. Neglect all of that, 
but we will not neglect the house of our God. We will not neglect the house of our God, which of course is, is, is uh, representative of, of, of what we are doing here. So, so is, are the people of Israel saying, hey, this is the solution. Just make sure we go to the temple and we'll be fine. Just make sure we show up at church on Sunday and then we won't worship idols. Certainly not. But here's the thing that I think we need to recognize this morning. If we are going to live lives of worship Monday through Saturday, we need Sunday morning worship to ignite our hearts with the worth and the beauty and the value of God. We need Sunday mornings to position us after him so that Monday through Saturday are spent reminded of the beauty else. We need this gathering to get off on the right foot to be reminded of the beauty and the significance and worth of God as we gather here. And, and let me just say this about this gathering. We need this gathering to be more than just like filling a space in this room. We need to be a people who are chasing down the glory of bringing a place of delight in God's character as we come together and worship him. And it's at this gathering, brothers and sisters, that we come back to that pattern that I mentioned in the first place, isn't it? Because isn't it more, didn't we say, how we engage in lives of worship is by following this pattern. It's not just lifting our hands and singing, but it's, it's the truth that we sing or the truth that we hear. And the truth is that we were once utterly desperate people. We devoted ourselves to the creation over the creator, and frankly, we cared very little about the creator. We would have been perfectly fine with us, him giving us all of his creation and having nothing to do with him at all. That was all of us. And we were destined for God's judgment, God's wrath, and yet, while we were a people in desperation, God sent redemption. He sent his son, Jesus, through whom we have salvation from our idols. And through Jesus, we have countless reasons to worship, countless reasons to worship. So what do we do now in light of this truth that we hear every Sunday? We live lives of devotion to the true and living God. So let's experience this pattern, desperation, salvation, devotion. Let's experience this pattern this morning by taking communion together. And I really want you to slow down, okay, for just a few minutes. We have time, the world can wait. Uh, I want you to slow down this morning before you come to the table. And I want you to just in your seats, ask yourself this question. What am I primarily living for today? What do I treasure above all else? What do I think is going to give me lasting meaning, lasting satisfaction, lasting value? If the fill in the blank is anything besides the God who made you, it'll only lead to destruction. And I cast it aside. It cannot deliver what it promises you. It can't. And then come to this communion table and experience what was given up for you to be set free from your idols. God took on human form, he took on a body, and he says to you this morning, my body for you. He shed his blood on the cross to cover all of your sins, including your idolatry, if not most fundamentally, your idolatry, so that you can be forgiven and set free. Revel together this morning in the salvation that's been provided for you so that when you leave this place, you can live a life of devotion. If you're here in this gathering this morning 
and you would say you're not a Christian, you, you know, you've really not come to a place where you've turned from idols, you've not yet trusted in Christ and been baptized upon your profession, then I wanna invite you to remain in your seat. Um, but this, is a, this can be a really significant moment, even if you're not a Christian, even if you're not a religious person. What we invite people to do in this gathering every, every, every week is this. Just evaluate your life. Just, just think about your life for just a moment. How many of us take a time to just stop, slow down, and just contemplate your life? Contemplate what it is that you are pursuing this morning and ask yourself this question. Knowing what you know about all the people who have chased those things down, whether it's sex, money, success, beauty, possessions, kids, marriage, I don't know. What is the primary thing that you're chasing down this morning? Can it really deliver for you what you are hoping that it will? Can it really satisfy you? The opportunity this morning is to evaluate that and maybe you're at a place where you come like many of us have said and the answer is no, it can't. This great thinker, his name is Augustine, he lived in the 300s, 400s, said the following, uh, you have made uh, us for yourself, speaking to God, like you've made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. We'll continue to be restless, we'll continue to be unsatisfied until we give the worship to God that he deserves. So if you're not a Christian this morning, hang out in your seat as we take communion. Uh, contemplate your life. For the rest of us, hang out in your seat for a minute, okay? Contemplate your idols, and then when you're ready, come forward and consider what Jesus has done to set you free. Let's pray. Number one, reveal to us what our idols are. What are we putting our hope in? What do we think just makes life worth living? What are we chasing down that really is just chasing wind? Reveal those idols to us, I pray. Oh, and God, would you provoke in us the courage to cast them aside? I don't know what those idols are that people are chasing down this morning, but would you give us the courage and the faith to cast them aside and say, nothing can satisfy me but the God who made me. My heart will remain restless until it finds its rest in him. And as we cast them aside and as we sing and seek you through worship, would you reveal to us the treasure, the great treasure that you are? Thank you for these things. We ask them in Jesus' name, amen.